Not long ago, reporter Sonia Paul was working on a story about caste discrimination in California. Caste is a tradition that comes from India. It's a hereditary identity where some people are at the top of society and some are at the bottom. Anyway, Sonia asked a source, have you ever experienced caste discrimination here in the U.S.? Here? So it happens all the time. What's the one that, like, maybe is most outrageous or hurts the most? The handshake. What is the handshake? I run into this gentleman. We shake hands. He's holding a tissue in his hand. Right away he states his caste. Then he says, you have to hold a tissue. You never know who you're shaking hands with. I said, really? I am that untouchable. I'm that untouchable. Now the state of California wants to make this caste discrimination illegal. That's coming up on Today Explained. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. It's Today Explained. I'm Noel King. Reporter Sonia Paul has been covering cast in the United States for the past several years. And she recently reported and hosted a BBC documentary called The Hidden Cast Codes in Silicon Valley. We called Sonia to talk about this bill that California's Governor Gavin Newsom is about to sign into law. This law would ban caste discrimination in workplaces, houses, and schools. So I started by asking Sonia to explain what caste is. In its most basic sense, caste is a social identity that is determined by your family. There are people at the top and there are people at the bottom. At the top of this system is a group of people known as Brahmins. And at the bottom, technically outside the caste system, they are outcast, are the Dalits. What kind of jobs do Dalits have historically? Yes, historically, they took on jobs like manual scavenging, um, which is basically cleaning human excrement or street sweeping, basically all the jobs that were deemed to be unclean or impure. I associate caste with India. Is this purely an Indian thing? No, and this is a common misunderstanding. Caste was first mentioned in ancient Hindu scripture, but over time, it permeated other religions, and it exists throughout South Asia. So you would also find it, say, in Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and in parts of the world where you would have South Asian diasporas. You've spoken to a lot of people who have talked about 
experiencing caste discrimination in your reporting. What do they tell you? What does caste discrimination look like? So people can tell caste often based on last name or a person's ancestral village or what their families historically did for a living, right? So in the BBC documentary I reported, actually, there was a tech worker who, um, you know, received very excellent performance evaluations throughout his time at a tech company, which is a well-known tech company here in the United States. And afterward, he had a manager switch. And the new manager, also Indian origin, had asked about the pronunciation of his last name. Hey, your last name spelled P-I-L-L-I, Pillai. And is it Pillai or Pili? Pillai in South India is a affluent caste last name. And Pili in our native language in Telugu, only the majority of Dalit communities have that last name. And afterward, um, he received like the lowest performance appraisals he's ever received. I have been given a zero, putting me in not met category to my job's responsibility. And he actually went to his company, but they determined that no caste discrimination had occurred. Of course, at the time, there was no policy in place about that. But if you were to think about that situation, it sounded like there was maybe unconscious bias or a perception that this person wasn't working up to par once you know their caste background. So another dimension of this is that many people who are from these Dalit communities, are marginalized caste backgrounds, actually hide their identities. So I spoke with a man, Dr. Singh. He's actually one of the most vocal supporters of the caste bill now. And he told me about when he was applying for residency, he actually had somebody who was in a position of power to help that process literally ask him his caste background. He did ask me. Or do you belong to this caste, upper caste? And he knew that person was from a dominant caste background. I was kind of dumbfolded at that time. What should I answer? Because if I say yes, then it might make feel him good. If I say it different, then his response might change. And so Dr. Singh basically lied and said he was of the same background as well because he didn't want to risk revealing his actual caste identity and that person not wanting to help him out in the same manner anymore. Where did the idea of legally outlawing caste discrimination come from? How did this get started? This understanding of outlawing caste in legal terms has been going around for a long time, right? But the most prominent example, I think, came in 2020, in the summer of 2020, in the middle of the protests after the murder of George Floyd. News broke of a lawsuit against Cisco, which is a multinational company based in Silicon Valley. It's headquartered in San Jose. The state of California sued Cisco Systems on behalf of a Dalit engineer, just like Cornelius, on an all-Indian work team. The lawsuit claims that when the engineer's dominant caste bosses found out his caste, they discriminated against him and then retaliated when he complained to HR. Alleging that two managers had discriminated against a person because he's Dalit. And so that lawsuit was against the managers, but also against Cisco, the company itself. And 
after the Cisco lawsuit, we saw kind of a wave of other colleges and universities adding CAS as a protected category. The California Democratic Party added CAS as a protected category. And then in February of this year, Seattle became the first American city to ban CAS discrimination. This will be a systemic legal way to stop this from growing in Seattle. And just recently, Fresno became the second city and first city in California to do just the same. Fresno authorities officially marked caste and indigeneity as two protected categories in Fresno Municipal Code on Friday after city council members unanimously voted to do so. The California bill has opponents. Who are the opponents? Who opposes this? So the most vocal opposition to the California bill comes from some Hindu groups and individuals who say that naming caste in the law Even if it's a subset of ancestry, just the fact that you're saying the word caste, it's basically going to malign Hindus because of the popular understanding between caste and Hinduism. And they are calling for Gavin Newsom to veto the bill. I would just ask, why is anybody supporting a racist law like SB 403, which presumes that a community is guilty until they can prove themselves innocent? So bottom line is we're stereotyped over this term too much already, and then you add this law on top of it, it just, you know, amplifies that, and that's not fair. I would assume the people who are opposing this law to ban discrimination are upper caste. Is that fair? Yes, I think that's fair, especially because the vast majority of um, Indian Americans have historically come from these dominant caste communities, and that has to do with the fact that, you know, Post-1965, the U.S. wanted a lot of skilled workers, the people who had the resources to make it over here and be selected by U.S. immigration policy were people from dominant caste backgrounds. So earlier this year, California had a bunch of hearings about the bill, and I spoke with a lot of the opposition many of whom just said, like, caste is not relevant. Um, There are also people that I spoke with who blatantly feel that this is an attack on Hinduism and that there is no way that you can separate the definition of caste from Hinduism. And in the U.S. also, no one asks each other which caste you are. None of us know which is the other Indian, which caste they belong to. And we don't care if you're uh, Dalit or you're Brahmin. we, We are all Indians and we all go to temple. Why do you think we're seeing these attempts at legislation concentrated on the West Coast and not in other places with big Indian American or South Asian populations like New York or Illinois? I think a lot of that has to do with how many of the initial complaints that came out about caste discrimination in the wake of the Cisco lawsuit came from tech companies. So Seattle is a major tech hub. California with Silicon Valley is a major tech hub. And it also has to do with where do you have the will of lawmakers to introduce such legislation. So in Seattle, it was Shama Suwant, who is a socialist and Indian American, um, who introduced this bill. In California, it was Senator Aisha Wahab, who is also progressive. So it's like, where are these people who are kind of making waves and talking about caste discrimination? A, where are their lawmakers paying attention and wanting to do something about it? You've talked to people who really want these anti-caste discrimination laws passed. What do they imagine will happen once this becomes law? What gets better for them? I mean, two things are happening simultaneously. One is that people are talking about caste discrimination 
Two is you actually see people from these marginalized caste backgrounds coming out and asserting themselves. You know, they're not hiding their identities anymore. And so a bill to ban caste discrimination only does so much in the workplace and housing and education and so on and so forth. But the hope is that once you put it into the law, A, you assert this exists. B, you assert that you're not going to tolerate it anymore. And so it trickles down from the law and that healing can begin when they feel comfortable asserting their identities in the public, right? So there's a lot going on here, especially given the fact that caste atrocities continue to this day in South Asia. What can happen here in California that can sort of set the motion for the rest of the world to understand this pain? Sonia Paul is a journalist in California who covers caste. Coming up, how caste has shaped Indian politics, including entrenching the authoritarian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Big improvements can make your past behavior look absolutely wild, says Mint Mobile, targeting all of us personally. And Mint Mobile wants to do that with your phone bill. Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. And in retrospect, you might feel a little silly about how much you were paying before. Plus, according to Mint Mobile, all of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's biggest 5G network. You can get this new customer offer and your three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month by going to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You can cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. $45 upfront payment required. Do the math. That's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower, above 40 gigabytes on this unlimited plan. And additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for those details. Support for Today Explained comes from Indeed. Hiring can be difficult. You can hope and pray and ruminate on how to find the perfect candidate, or you can turn to something more reliable, a smart piece of technology like Indeed's matching engine. According to Indeed, that matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences for job candidates, so it becomes more accurate over time. The more you use it, the better it gets. Indeed also lets you ditch some of the busy work, scheduling, screening, messaging. According to Indeed data, they have over 350 million global monthly visitors. They also did a survey that showed 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Listeners of Today Explained will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Today Explained. You can go to Indeed.com slash Today Explained. Let them know you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Today Explained. Terms and conditions do apply. Need to hire? Asks Indeed. You need Indeed. You are listening to Today Explained. 
I'm Noel King. So we called up Ananya Chakravarti, a professor of history at Georgetown, because she has this really interesting argument. She says caste is not a relic. It is affecting Indian politics bigly. Caste discrimination is illegal in India now, but when it was made illegal, there was a violent backlash. And that backlash, Ananya says, helped propel the authoritarian Narendra Modi into power. So the story starts when India outlaws caste discrimination, which was? So right after independence, actually. So it it was banned in 1948, and then that impulse was then enshrined in our constitution. I don't want to paint this kind of rosy picture of like, we became independent, we banned caste, and then everything was great. Caste, if anything, receded into the private sphere to some extent. We are actually Shudras, lower caste. To be specific, sir, we hey, people... You can't mention that. We are not no, supposed no, 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 to mention no, no. That applies to you, sir. Yes, but I can mention it, sir. Even though, you know, I come from a family that was politically progressive in many ways, caste was absolutely a background noise of our private life. Discussions of who in the family had married out of caste, you know, and sort of being so young that it was the adults who were talking amongst themselves. But it's not that the attitudes of the social mores around caste disappeared, precisely because it's perpetuated through practices like marriage, you know, which is very much part of how family and and social life is organized. He said that he wanted Brahmin. And I was shocked. He doesn't know anything about Brahmin. And he's not practicing. Then why, why do he want a Brahmin girl? Caste in many ways, especially for families like mine, which were upper caste and urban, it receded into the realm of the private, but never died. In the late 1970s, there was a really pivotal moment, which was the promulgation of a commission called the Mundal Commission that was tasked with studying what other communities beyond those already recognized in the Constitution should have access to some kind of legal redress for historical caste discrimination. And the Mundal Commission comes back and, you know, shows that actually many communities, um, which in legal parlance in India are referred to as other backward castes, have actually experienced the ill effects and the historical ill effects of being lower caste, even if they weren't technically, say, untouchable, right? And this, of course, constitutes the majority of the country. So if you are in a lower caste the caste system has been bad for you, that seems pretty self-evident. What does it say about the upper castes? The Bundle Commission's findings were shocking. I mean, for example, Brahmins were massively overrepresented in India's parliament, in the higher education sector, in the higher reaches of business. All the 121 leadership positions in India's top newsrooms are held by dominant castes. 93% of board members of Indian corporates are upper caste. 41% of the country's total wealth is owned by upper caste Hindus. What happens after that, after the realization that Brahmins dominate everything? The government then puts aside a certain number of seats to government jobs and, and education for lower caste now. This is not just the untouchable. We're talking about lower caste. And this is the implementation that leads to this kind of violent backlash. So the lower castes are now getting better treatment and there's a backlash from the upper castes. How does that affect Indian politics? There was a 
old party that represented the sort of Hindu nationalists um, that was part of the coalition of the ruling party that had been in charge of the government at the time that the Mondal Commission report was put together. And as part of the backlash uh, around this report, this party kind of splits off and becomes what is today known as the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is the ruling party of India. The BJP. And it's Prime Minister Modi's party. We were nationalists, we are nationalists, and we will nationally remain nationalists. The BJP is the political wing of the RSS, which stands for Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, or the National Volunteer Organization, is an Indian Hindu nationalist um, paramilitary organization, which were fashioned along the lines of the Italian fascists and had strong ties to them. In 1992, in the city of Ayodhya, when the RSS joined other right-wing Hindu groups to demolish the historic Babri Masjid, the mosque's destruction sparked Hindu-Muslim communal rioting that killed some 2,000 people. Imagine you see this kind of massive rise in the electoral popularity of the BJP. And a lot of that has to do with the consolidation of the upper caste in many ways as its real base. The RSS, its base has traditionally been the Brahmins. So what really ends up becoming the sort of real turning point after the Mandel Commission report is when it was finally implemented in 1990. And when it was implemented, there were mass protests. Soon after the Mandal recommendations were implemented, Rajiv Goswami, a student of Delhi University, set himself on fire, sustaining 50% burns. Including, very famously, a case of one Brahmin student activist who tried to immolate himself. He survived the immolation bit, but the spark had been ignited. In cities and towns near Delhi, a number of youths set themselves on fire. The sort of backlash is kind of, you know, shown by a dramatic act of political activism. Throughout the 1990s, you see these various upper caste groups, I mean, and including really violent militias that organize as a way to kind of reinforce the caste system against what they would consider these uppity lower castes that are sort of agitating for greater access to education and better jobs, etc. Hundreds of villages have been butchered by a private upper-caste army. They're being killed not for what they've done, but for who they are. The report comes out, it says, the lower castes have suffered as a result of caste discrimination. We're going to have to change some things. And then as a result of that report, the BJP, this political party, starts to get a lot of support. The BJP now leads India. This is Prime Minister Narendra Modi's party. Where does his government stand on caste? So the ruling party in India has to kind of walk a fine line because, of course, the upper castes who form its base are demographically a minority. So this is really the sort of dilemma that caste poses to the ruling party because, on the one hand, their ideologies and their practices are absolutely beholden to Brahmins and Brahmanism, I would say. And on the other, the consolidation of their base and their vision of Indian nationalism requires the consolidation of the category of the Hindu, which of course means that they cannot allow the idea of caste to tear apart that category. 
Are people in India paying attention to these anti-caste discrimination bills in the U.S., which which are aimed at protecting the historically marginalized lower castes? Oh, absolutely. We shift our focus to Seattle, a city in the American state of Washington, a city which is being hailed for banning caste-based discrimination. The decision in Seattle is being called controversial, even Hindu-phobic. An Indian origin senator is complaining, and the Indian community is not happy. This is in many, many ways an absolutely globalized fight. And we're not just talking about sort of echoes of arguments that are made in India that show up here, right? But we're talking about like actual, you know, ties between different groups here as well as in India. Why do you think these bills are being introduced in the United States today? Why do you think they're becoming law? The flows of Indian immigration since the 1990s, particularly in areas like tech, where you have had a big flow of highly educated Indians and where, frankly, from my own observations, having lived in some of these communities, I can absolutely say that, you know, they have retrenched and practiced caste. So, for example, you know, I have heard school children talk without, you know, any self-reflection about the fact that they're pure vegetarians because they're Brahmins. I see caste pride personalized license plates on cars everywhere, which, you know, to, to me at least looks like a public assertion of caste power, which is frightening. We're not going to be able to abolish caste in India, I think, without also thinking about what it means to abolish caste in the diaspora and vice versa. These are absolutely connected movements. But I think so for the U.S. case, certainly, I think it's an absolutely welcome move, not just from the point of view of just the South Asian community or other minority communities where caste is practiced, but from the point of view of larger U.S. society, which is to recognize that there are vulnerable communities even within racialized minorities that require protection. That was Professor Ananya Chakravarti of Georgetown. Today's episode was produced by Halima Shah and Isabel Angel with an assist from Siona Petros. It was edited by Miranda Kennedy and fact-checked by Laura Bullard. Our engineer is David Herman. I'm Noel King. It's Today Explained. 